Hi, and welcome to the Money Quest Live podcast. I'm your host, Simon Dean. The Money Quest Live podcast talks to our network of franchisees and business partners to hear about their stories and to discover how they are building their business to thrive. Welcome. Today we talk to Tony Hayek. Tony is the CEO of the property investment group Blue Wealth. In this podcast, I was keen to learn more about the person behind the business. I hope from this interview you can hear the passion and purpose that is driving Tony to help others build wealth for their future. Please welcome Tony. Please. Um, so uh, I was born in Melbourne. We go all the way back, actually, born in, in Carlton in Melbourne. Oh, right. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the son of um, a couple of immigrants. Uh, my dad migrated to Australia in the late 60s. My mum in the early 70s, they got married here, even though they're from neighbouring villages um, back in Lebanon. And I, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, you know, we can go, we can talk about the journey, um, uh, the life journey or, or who I am a little bit later if you like, but how did I get into the business? Essentially, if I fast forward now, I'm uh, 16 years old, I'm doing my HSC. Uh, the reason I was a bit younger was because my parents dodged up my birth certificate and put me into school here early because right. they, they were running a milk bar, a mixed business at the time with no, no family support. And my sister and I were 12, uh, 11 months apart. Right. So getting us into school, uh, got me into school. I turned four in November. I was at school in January, which in Lebanon was quite standard. Right. So, <clears throat> so you could do that kind of stuff back then, of course. Yeah. Um, so I did my HSC when I was 16. I failed. I got, uh, what, out of 100, I got 48.85. And um, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I really was, you know, a bit of a lost kid. Um, always uh, enthusiastic, always good with people and always, you know, got on with people well, but, no, you know, and always was ambitious to do well. I just didn't really have the infrastructure to do well. You know, I had ethnic parents who didn't really speak English. I was the eldest. I had no older siblings to help me through. I had no real guidance. I had no older cousins. I had no, no way of sort of getting any better uh, at my academics. So I failed and I ended up at um, University of Newcastle doing a Bachelor of Arts degree because it was, I got 48.85 and I think it was 47.75 or something that was the pass mark. And the following, the following year it jumped like 20 points. So it didn't help you from wanting to go to university because even in those days, that's quite rare. Not everyone went to university and correct. And, and as you said, you didn't do as well as you may have hoped. And to still have that ambition to go to university is interesting. Well, it wasn't really ambition, it was more fear. <laughs> right. And uh, this is, and I know some of the some of your viewers who are who have hardcore parents will understand what I'm talking about, but my parents essentially never gave me an option. That was always going to be my path. Right. Which now, as a parent, is a very interesting concept, you know, very interesting philosophy, because in 2021, forcing your kids to do things mm. is, is a no-no. And, you know, they rebel and they complain and they put, you know, put posts on social media about how shit their parents are and all <laughs> that kind of stuff, yeah? So 
Uh, you know, so it's quite a dilemma for me now as a parent. You know, at what point do I push my kids through what they don't want to do, knowing that I know more about life than they do? Mm. And at what point do I give in and go, okay, well, whatever you want? You know, because I know that I certainly wouldn't have in my life now what I have had I not been pushed into things by my parents. Yeah. yeah. So I ended up at Newcastle University, um, did a BA. Um, my sister was interested in psychology. I thought, oh, that sounds all right. My younger sister was really my hero. You know, she was, she, she, she's the person I've looked up to most of my life, you know, and, and, and to, to a great extent, my younger brother as well, who's a young entrepreneur, left university, at, uh, left school in year 11, early year 11. So my siblings have been a great source of motivation for me as well, um, even though they're younger than me. And I'm sure I've been, a, you know, to a certain extent, one for them. So that we've been fortunate in that respect. Um, so I rolled the clock forward, ended up with a, you know, stumbling through university, um, failed most of my first year, uh, tried, tried to quit. And my mother, my mother was arguing with me about it. And then she, in the end, she gave in and she said, fine, if you want to quit, you go and tell your father. So I put my bags back in the car and I drove back to university because that was a safer option. Um, <laughs> And then I started to settle in. Um, I ended up with a first-class honours degree. I got a PhD scholarship. I did a PhD and, and all of that before I was, you know, um, so 25, 26. Yeah, wow. Uh, ended up in a business consultancy uh, or business consulting. Um, a young man with ambition, no experience, but decided he could be a business consultant, you know. Uh, one of my clients was a property, a property developer. One of my clients was a financial planner. and and what I would then find out later on was that those two worlds would collide essentially to, to drive my fate. And so from the property development clients, I learned about property and about property development. And I really loved it as a, as a concept, but I hated property development itself. Um, they offered me a partnership. I ended up being a partner with them in that business. And um, I hated it because property development essentially is a, there's a lot of fighting that goes on. You know, you're fighting with council, you're fighting with landowners, you're fighting with builders, you're fighting with salespeople, you're fighting with the banks. You fight, you know, it's a constant conflict. Lots of tension. <laughs> Lots of tension. And I'm a lover, but I'm not a fighter, you know. And certainly when I was in my early 20s, uh, wasn't as resilient as I, as I am today. Um, so I did that for a few years. I hated it. Uh, and then one of my old... Uh, clients, the financial planner. He was trying to introduce um, some sort of research to property as an asset class. Because Simon, as you probably know, 20 or 30 years ago, um, property wasn't an asset class. Property was somewhere where people lived. Yep. So property, property investment in, the, in its current form is actually a relatively new industry. Yeah? Where people treat uh, property as uh, as an asset with returns and you know capital growth rates and yields etc. Takes a different mindset, doesn't it? Correct. When we were kids, a property investment was a house you grew out of, yeah. and you and your family grew out of, and you kept it, and it was called a rental. Yeah. And you bought a new house. You know that's how people used to accumulate assets back then. Not people weren't as proactive about property investment. So he he was adamant that he was. You know, property investment property was the best asset class for people to build wealth, and he was adamant he was going to bring some structure to that. Uh, he invited me to come and work with him. I jumped at the chance, and using my um, 
research background, I was able to integrate a lot of those research principles into, into uh, removing the, so the emotion from property investment and applying a more scientific approach, yeah? Yep. Did that for a few years, ran a business called Pulse Property, turned it into the biggest business of its type in the country, where we would use research to identify property assets and then distribute those assets through uh, a B2B network where there were brokers and planners and accountants who had clients who wanted to invest in property. And that would be a more sensible approach to ensure that people could afford to buy those properties that we were reviewing, researching. It's now 2008, uh, the GFC hits. This group that I'm working for is highly leveraged. Um, they essentially go broke. They go into voluntary administration. I'm owed in excess of $600,000. Oh, wow. I have two young boys. Um, Joseph was um, two and a half. Benjamin was um, not even a year old. And my wife was pregnant with Sarah. So I've got two kids, um, a pregnant wife, a mortgage, four or five investment properties and no job. Um, in a so, in the GFC. In the GFC. So my, um, someone came in and bought that business, essentially, you know, bought in inverted commas. I tried to do a deal with the owners and myself, but they rejected that. And um, essentially he was sort of coming in to scavenge the place, you know, and, and fortunately for me, I didn't have a contract. I didn't have an employment contract. And so I just left and started blew up, much to his dissatisfaction. Because my part of the business actually generated 80% of group revenue. Yeah? I took four, four or five of my staff with me and I started a business on the 12th of January, 2009, called Blue Wealth Property in the worst financial crisis of our lifetime. Um, and you know what they say, Simon, about decisions, only with the benefit of hindsight, do you know whether they were clever or they were stupid? Um, turns out that decision was clever, but it certainly could have been stupid because we got to within a month of losing our home. Wow. Uh, it takes time to generate revenue in a business and I had five staff to pay and I was trying to get money from banks. And in the end, you know, we probably don't have enough time for this story in this podcast, but um, a, couple of, a couple of friends lent me money no security, no nothing. They just said, give me your bank account details, we'll put money in your bank. And for me, <clears throat> that's always been a great lesson in life that, that you reap what you sow in life. You know, you show people trust and you look after them when you can. And then when, when it's your turn, that generally, you know, karma, karma reappears. Yeah. Um, and so I'm very grateful for that. You know, there were three people in, you know, in particular. Uh, Johnny and his brother Ellie and Alan and his brother Warren and, and, and then Stuart Bayless who is an old uh, is a broker now and an old yeah. mate who used to work together at the old place yeah. <clears throat> and that's, that was a very uh, timely conversation so and then you know the business sort of took off from there you know we, we really struggled with cash flow in the first six months like a lot of businesses do yeah. uh, once the rubber hit the road uh, the business went from strength to strength and um, I've always believed in, in filling uh, the business with good people um, because every other resource most people can get their hands on. But if you've got good people, um, they, they're generally the difference. And 
anyone who's dealt with us before or dealt with Blue Earth over time, you know, knows how amazing my team are. Um, um, I'm very grateful for the culture that we've built. And, you know, as Mike Russell says quite often, you know, he's the custodian of the brand. You know, that was a, that was a line that he told me when he was the CEO of Morgan Choice and I, I, it stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And now MoneyQuest, he's the custodian of the brand. He's, you know, the buck stops with him and, and I'm the same with, in my business. You know, I'm the custodian of the brand. I'm the custodian of the culture. Mm-hmm. And so it's my job to protect that at, at all costs. And that flows through all the way to all the stakeholders, you know, and, and ultimately to the clients mm-hmm. because without the clients, there is no business, you know. So... Um, that's that's something I'm grateful for. So blue wealth, blue wealth. What what the the, the why there? What was the, the the thing that was driving you? You're talking about um, well, you apart, apart from the desperation and like kids starving. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but there's another reason too, isn't it? Like obviously, of course, of course. Um, you know, in, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, that's the you go down to the bottom rung, but at the top, there's a self actualization. Yeah, look. For me, mate, I've always had this incredible, incredibly driven hunger to to achieve, to succeed. Um, I've never been motivated by money. Um, it's, it's amazing. I'm very grateful for the fact that I've made enough money to look after my children and probably their children and their children. But it's never been a motivation for me. That's always been an outcome. If you do the right things and you set up the right structures and you've got a good business model and you you know you apply this, the the right principles, you you know the rest will take care of itself. So for me, I'm a problem solver. You know, I'm a solutions man. One of the key problems I believe in Australia is that most Australians will not retire with, with enough money. Um, if I start with my own family and friends, we've been taught to buy a home. You know. Uh, get married, find a good girl or a good boy and have some kids and pay off the home loan. And that's that's really what your life's all about. Yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, we know now that not only have social structures, not, not only have social structures changed, but also financial structures have changed and we all want different things now. Our, our parents and their parents certainly lived a much simpler life than the one we want to live. And, you know, I use... Um, Travel as an example, you know, if I want to fly overseas, I don't want to fly economy yeah. and I want to fly business class. And we're Aussies, so the tall poppy syndrome kicks in and someone who's watching right now will go, well, you're a wanker, aren't you? What's wrong with economy? Yeah. But for me, um, I'm happy to push that boundary. I'm happy to, to deliver to my life the best of what's out there, not, not put up with, you know, what my parents were happy to put up with or what their parents were happy to put up with. So the reality of it is, mate, that, um, you know, I teach people this thing about money you live in versus money you live on. And the money you live in is your home and your car and your clothes. And that's what most Aussies are obsessed with. The reality is that, you know, you're in Melbourne, let's say you own a beautiful house in uh, an aspirational suburb like Brighton, for example, and it might be worth four or five million bucks or Bo Morris mm-hmm. um, when you retire. But, if, but, it, but that house is not going to generate your income and resolve. So what, what are you living off? And a lot of people will say, well, Tony, I'll live off my, off my super. Yeah? Well, your super, if you do well, long-term will return you a, a, a 5% return. And let's say you've done really well and you've got five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand $800,000 worth of super. 
and you and your husband or you and your wife or you and your partner have retired now, you've got $600,000, dollars worth of super and you get 5,000, 5% out of that every year. Or if you've got 800 grand, that's 40 grand a year that you and your wife or partner have to live off now. Are you happy with that? I'm not. And if I've been earning 150 or $200,000 household income between my partner and I through our senior years, all of a sudden that gets switched off and now I've got to revert back to 40 grand a year. Well, no thanks. No. Not interested. Not interested. Yeah. So what happens now is you start digging into your super. Now, it's fine when we used to die at 70, but now we're dying at 90. So if I'm retiring at 60, well, I've got 25 years to fund. Right? I can't fund that the same way I could fund the first five years when I used to die at 70 or 75. So, you know, the structure of our life is changing. And for, for me, we are at the forefront of helping Australians completely redesign that structure. Yeah, so if you buy, if you bought any property in Melbourne or Sydney 10 years ago and you've still got it today, then you're hundreds of thousands of dollars richer. That property is costing you nothing to hold. It's renting really well. The bubble didn't burst, you know, because there's always that uncle who's running around telling everybody that, you know, bubble's going to worst and they're going to wait and buy property when the bubble bursts. And of course, yeah. 40 years later, they bought nothing. Um, there's always an uncle who knows everything but owns nothing. You know, that might be your partner or your parent or your sibling or your best friend or whatever. Avoid those people at all costs. <laughs> so, you know, we're basically, we're in the business of helping Australians buy good assets uh, and hold on to them for the long term so that they can, they can end up in a better place. You know, in the last 20 years, mate, the number of Australians retiring with debt on their home has doubled. Yeah? It's doubled, which means not only are people don't have any assets to retire on, but they, they've still got a mortgage. They're going to pay off, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so different. Yeah. So we're just, you know, we're trying in our own little way to make that shift. Yeah. And, and if you, I don't know if you were there on Thursday when I spoke to the MoneyQuest Network, I was saying to all of the brokers themselves, they should be buying an investment property. You know, we're in, the, we're in this environment right now where the ducks have lined up so well that if you've got equity in a current property, you can buy the property for nothing using equity. And, and because rates are so low, you can hold the property for nothing. Yeah. So you're buying for nothing and holding for nothing. Yeah. And the cynical nature of us Aussies is, well, what's the catch, mate? Yeah? yeah. Well, the catch is that you actually need to make the decision to do it. Or, or yeah. that fear of the bubble's going to burst. Yeah. I'm going to be left with uh, negative equity. Yeah, well, the bubble is not going to burst because interest, because interest rates are low and um, construction costs have gone through the roof, which is going to reduce supply. The only way the bubble bursts is if there's an enormous influx of supply, mm -hmm. which is why I said last April, April of 2020, I wrote an article that went against everything that everybody was saying at the time. If you remember, everyone was saying the property market was going to fall 20 or 30%. And you said to me, you know, Tony, do you apply any of your education in, your, in the real world? And, and I do, because what Blue Wealth understands is that what drives property markets are not numbers or data, but humans. Yep. Yeah? Yep. And Aussies, we don't run at the first sign of trouble. Yeah, that's not our style. No, you're right. Yep. Our style is to bunker down. Oh, we can't. We are. We bunker down and we do what we need to do to get ourselves through. So the only way the property market was going to fall 
is if Simon and Tony and Michael and all, and Mary and Julie and all our friends and family and clients all decided, oh. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to dump my house, sell it and get out. But what did we do? We didn't do that at all. We did the opposite. We bunkered down. We cut our spending. Most of that was forced on us. But even before it was forced on us, we, we did it anyway. You know, household savings rates are at all-time highs. And we just, you know, we bought our time. And, of course, you know, in that article I said some outrageous stuff that the market was going to hibernate and then when, it come, when we come out of hibernation, it's going to explode. And I was ridiculed for that, yeah. And, and, and here we are. Again? Do you think that's what you'll see, we'll see again in um, as, as, you know, New South Wales and Victoria start to emerge from um, our forced lockdown? Do you see no. that happening? No, I don't. I think, I think there'll be a relative... Um, recalibration towards towards what is the new normal and i think that we will see particularly in melbourne we'll, we'll continue to see some good growth uh the sydney problem of course is a, is a significant affordability one and when you compare sydney and melbourne the infrastructure of the cities in terms of its economies are relatively similar but sydney's 30 or 40 percent more expensive so, the, the, the opportunity in Melbourne is a pretty clear one to me, and that's why we've been so focused on Melbourne for our clients. So, so what I'm hearing, Tony, is, you know, um, you, you've got this desire to help people be financially secure um, when they retire. You're using property as an asset, so it's, it's not emotional. It's about how can I make a return on this that's going to support me in the long term. And what I really love about your business is that you've got a methodology that explains how you come up with your preferred properties. So some right. science um, research that you put into it rather than this is a good property because I know the mate down the road who bought this property said it was really nice. So. And, the, and the industry that we're in now, science, you know, it's full of conflicts. So if you want to run a good business, you need to manage those conflicts and, you, and clients need to be confident that you've managed those conflicts. Yeah. So, you know, the research methodology, you know, for me, my two great passions in life are, you know, work life, uh, uh, property and research. And that's essentially what my business is. Yeah. And so um, we manage the conflict with research. We ensure we share all the information with clients. It's pretty clear what they're doing. Um, and that's something that we're really proud of. Now, I wasn't uh, able to attend uh, last Thursday. I actually had a, a conflicting meeting. But um, for me, who wasn't there, what was your key message that you wanted to make sure our franchisee network got? The key message is have a conversation with your clients. Buy a property yourself, right? Yeah. Because first and foremost, you know, whenever you do anything in life, leading, leading by example is, is, the best, is the best method in my mind. Yeah. Um, I'm not quite sure I trust anyone selling me something that they wouldn't buy themselves or wouldn't do themselves, yeah? Um, so from my perspective, um, that was the message. Buy property yourselves and take advantage of this incredibly um, uh, advantageous environment that we're in and make sure that you're having a conversation with your clients. Yeah. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, have you thought about using the equity in your home to take advantage of this low interest rate environment to potentially build your asset base that's going to help you to retire more comfortably? It's going to help you to help your children. It's going to help you to holiday better. It's going to help you to live better. It's going to help you to get better health care. It's got whatever. Yeah. yeah, it's going to give you hopefully a lifestyle that you deserve and you're probably having now so you don't have to go backwards. And as you Correct. said, we're going to live a lot longer. 
medicine. Correct. That. Correct. You know, interesting bit of trivia, mate, before we wrap up. When the when the Australian government introduced the pension, um, you got the pension. Yeah, you got the pension when you were sixty-five, and the average mortality was sixty-two. So people died at 62, and if they were unlucky enough to live past 62, the government would take care of them for a few years. I, I remember when I first joined a bank, um, they used to publish the people's uh, dates when they retired, and mm -hmm. then they, when they died. And I noticed that people were dying a couple of years later. It was actually yeah. a bit scary, and then they stopped publishing it. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's good advice. Hey, Gary, yeah. I really appreciate your time. Um, lots of really valuable information. Really appreciate you sharing a little bit about how you got to where you are. I think that just helps with the connection and I can hear the empathy and the sincerity in there. And I think you know, that's what I was hoping to hear. And, I, and that's what I've, I've got from you when I've spoken to you personally. So thank you for sharing you, that. Mate. And um, you know, the GSE time was very tough. I know a number of businesses, um, not sure if you know the boys at Red Z, but they started uh, in 2008. Um, worst time ever, but you know these are flourishing businesses now, and yeah. this goes to show tenacity and resilience, certainly in the Australian uh, makeup. That's for sure. So. And I think that's probably one of the significant silver lining that's going to come out of this COVID pandemic. You know that, yeah. that it's going to teach. You know we had some really really good years there post GFC. Yeah. And there was a whole generation that didn't understand pain. Yeah. yeah. I think pain is a great um, moderator for for a lot of people. You know. It focuses people. Hey, thank you. I, I better leave you, let you go. Thanks so much. My pleasure, you. mate. Great to see you. Good to see you. So I'll see you soon. Hopefully in person soon. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> see ya. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Tony. Um, as I try to do after each podcast is just to highlight some of the key learnings that I took away from my interview. And for me, um, Tony, I thought was very sincere, uh, but also very inspirational and was kind enough to share some of his personal life. For me, some of the key takeaways were how failure teaches us so much more. Learning how to get better, the challenges of growing your business, and learning to hustle, to understand that property is an asset, and we should use this as a way to secure your future and our customers' future. Again, I hope you enjoyed, and thanks for listening. Um.